Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Jackson Washburn, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Great. How are you doing, Bill? I'm doing awesome, my friend. I uh, I wanted to – I think people are going to begin to kind of know who you are. They're going to have seen you a little bit in social media. But let me just say as a – as somebody who's been kind of posting stuff and thinking about things and saying things in social media for, for I don't know, five, six, seven years at this point, um, it, it's interesting because you sit back and you watch different voices interacting and you see who the who – the, public voices are within apologetics and you see the public voices are within the critics and you see the, what mm-hmm. voices are within progressive Mormonism. And you're this interesting voice that has just come along, you know, maybe the last what seven, eight months or so, maybe just a little bit further back than that, but you're this new fresh voice. You're a younger guy. And I'm just interested in kind of getting to, to getting to know you and kind of figure out what makes you tick, but maybe start us off Jackson, if you would just, giving the listener kind of a brief bio of who you are and in your public life and in private life and just uh, just uh, a little bit of uh, information to help the listener kind of uh, get an idea of, of, about you. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I can say, uh, like you said, my name is Jackson Washburn. I am a uh, member of the church. Uh, I uh, just recently graduated high school, so uh, I actually just had my 19th birthday a few days ago. Uh, but I'm currently attending Arizona State University um, while majoring in religious studies. Uh, so I am very passionate when it comes to studying religion, um, studying language and culture, um, and, and just really anything to do with the humanities. And so uh, I absolutely love religious studies because it allows me to engage with, with history, with language, with culture, and, of course, with religion. So um I kind of get to hit on all the, the the topics and subjects that I'm passionate on with that. Um, yeah, my my backstory is a little unique. I uh, um, I was raised in a fully Mormon family. Um, I was born in Utah, uh, but moved to Arizona when I was around one. And um, my parents, uh, like I said, were were both uh, uh, active members of the church uh, while I was growing up. Uh, lived in a pretty normal Mormon household. Uh, then when I was 12 years old, um, something kind of unique happened. Uh, my mom um, converted out of the faith and uh, found new faith in a form of non-denominational Christianity. Um, so that was rather unique, going from a, a Mormon to an evangelical Christian. Um, and that was, a, that was a challenge that our family had to, uh, come, to come to terms with. Um, but one that, uh, we were able to work through and actually turn into a positive experience. Uh, so when that happened, you know, naturally the, the dynamic of the family shifted a little bit, um, because we had to, uh, 
learn how to, uh, you know, operate with uh, two faiths uh, under the same roof. Uh, me and my siblings, we would go to both our parents' churches on Sundays, uh, or we would switch off every week. Um, and, uh, you know, we just kind of had to learn uh, how to be around each other. Um, but one thing that was very refreshing to see was, uh, uh, despite some initial friction, uh, and some initial challenges, we were able to work, work through it and make it to where uh, we did come to accept each other and support each other in our different journeys. Um, and so that was something I'm, I'm really grateful I was able to actually go through is, uh, uh, you know, with my mom leaving the church, uh, we were very supportive of her. Um, and, uh, you know, my parents, they, they stayed together uh, in a loving relationship. Um, uh, eventually they, uh, divorced. Um, but, uh, not, not over the subject of, uh, religion. Um, you know, but it, it, it was a, a good thing growing up for me to be able to, uh, go through this process. Uh, but it was difficult too, at the same time. Um, you can imagine, uh, as a 12 year old, uh, and, and then, you know, later as an early teenager, um, this was a, uh, an introduction of an entirely new worldview into my life. And so naturally, uh, it came with a fair amount of confusion. And, uh, these are the years where, you know, I was just beginning to think for myself and kind of ponder and think about life's big questions. Uh, and it was just really interesting because at times I, I, I just felt so overwhelmed with uh, with this choice of, you know, which which parents' path do I choose? Do I choose non-denominational Christianity? Do I choose Mormonism? Do I go down another path? Um, you know, uh, really one of the those which of all these churches is true type scenarios. Uh, and my mom, through leaving the church, uh, did so for a variety of reasons, but uh, one of the straws that broke the camel's back I would say, um, was in reading, uh, some critical literature against the, uh, um, regarding the church. And so in my process of wanting to gain closure, uh, with why she left and understand, um, and also, you know, look more into my own faith tradition, uh, that I was raised in, I read a variety of, uh, what many members would consider anti-Mormon literature. Uh, I don't necessarily like that term. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I read many critical sources on the church, um, and, you know, just started really digging in deep, uh, from a variety of, uh, positions and arguments towards Mormonism. And, uh, that, that was when I could say my, my shelf collapsed, you know, uh, that's when my faith crisis began, uh, because I discovered things that I hadn't known before. Um, I found arguments raised that I hadn't thought of before. Um, and, you know, for these early years, um, growing up, uh, I just didn't know if I was going to remain a member or not, but I was desperately trying to figure it out and determine whether or not I was going to continue in the faith that I was raised, uh, if any faith, uh, or if I was going to choose my mom's faith or a different one. Um, they were, they, they were confusing, but also, uh, uh, for me to live years for me. Um, and I didn't go out of this faith crisis. I didn't, I didn't finally pull out of it until probably 
late age 15, uh, if not 16. Uh, that was when I finally gained my own testimony. Um, but that's kind of a, a, a little bit of a background for me in terms of faith um, development. Uh, I'm very big, like I said, when it comes to exploring religion. I'm very big when it comes to interfaith engagement. I've done quite a bit uh, in terms of interfaith activism, uh, going to different speaking engagements. Um, I, uh, throughout my high school career, established a um, variety of uh, high school interfaith organizations um, at a couple college uh, or high school campuses um, across the United States. And uh, I've uh, spoken at places such as the uh, Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City, Utah, back in 2015. Um, I was able to speak at the United Nations recently, uh, this last February. And uh, I've spoken at some other different venues on the, on the subject of uh, youth and interfaith and the importance of uh, um, positive dialogue and interaction and collaboration between people of different worldviews. Um, so it's something I'm very passionate about and something I can definitely uh, attribute to my growing up in a mixed household uh, and having to learn these kind of skills and values firsthand from a pretty early age. I, I do want to say that uh, I'm also planning on, on serving a mission in the future for the church. Um, and uh, so I think that's going to be an interesting experience for me uh, as a missionary uh, to to go through and be authentic to my own understanding of the gospel um, while also, you know, serving those uh, in need, ministering to their spiritual and uh, physical um, uh, needs as, as as a missionary. Uh, I, I look forward to that experience, um, and I think it, it might prove an interesting one, uh, considering, you know, that I, I might represent a different voice out in the field than what other missionaries might be um, so I do plan on doing that. Beautiful, beautiful. Awesome. I, I, I really appreciate that background because there were questions that I wanted to ask in terms of did you grow up in a rigid family? And, and, and obviously just having your mom leave Mormonism to another church and your family having to talk about that and be okay with it and not, not make mom the bad guy or not make dad the bad guy and, and it, obviously you grew up with a lot more flexibility and understanding simply through your experience than most other, uh, I think, I think any, you know, again, any religion, but let's just talk Mormonism, any Mormons that grow up with. Um, what I want to do today, Jackson, and again, I love the background because I think it sets up well this conversation. And you and I have been talking, kind of preparing for this, uh, and I want to make it clear to the listeners, like, I want to ask some what I think are tougher things, but but I respect you a ton, Jackson, and I promise we'll do this softly and kindly and and not hold you to anything because my views are always changing. I mean, I'm 39 years old, and it's something I said a year ago, like I would want to be asked it again before I'm held to it. And so I recognize like your views are changing, and and so please understand like for the listeners, like nobody should ever be held to anything they think, say, or believe that's, you know, a year old or, or older, or maybe even fresher than that, like ask people and give people a chance to reframe things. But certainly want to have this conversation and Jackson, feel free to ask anything back. If there's some question along the way that, that kind of helps the conversation. But I want to talk for a moment about profits. And, and the whole point in having you on today is because I think there's this newer 
fresher, more flexible voice coming out in Mormonism with the younger generation. And I think you are one of those voices that represents that. And so by asking you these questions and getting to feel for how you look at your Mormonism, it makes it possible for us to see kind of into that younger generation. But when it comes to a prophet, it it feels like when I joined the church, it was imposed on me that prophets are like Moses, Noah, and Abraham. And, And it seemed like what they were saying when they said that was, these men talk face to face with God. They, they have God show up in their tent. He shows up in their room. He shows up on the mountain and they have this conversation, you know, one person's voice uh, from a divine being going into the ears of that prophet. And it feels like as we've entered this, this dispensation that we live in, that prophets are defined differently. And Patrick Mason has talked about this. Terrell Givens has spoken to this, that in some ways this definition maybe needs to change a little bit. And I wondered maybe how you define uh, prophet uh, specifically in this dispensation. Well, uh, when it comes to this kind of new paradigm uh, that you described taking place in Mormonism, especially uh, within the younger generation, you know, I I can say that uh, individuals such as uh, Terrell Givens and Patrick Mason, among others, uh, will... Uh, most likely end up being the patron saints of this movement, uh, just in terms of what they contribute to it. Um, you know, when it comes to prophets and, and what I think about them, uh, of course, this is a view that I've had to develop over time, uh, because I, I think the, the vast majority of individuals within the church, um, just from, you know, your standard, uh, uh, correlated curriculum, uh, do have, uh, you know, somewhat of a, a basic understanding of the way that prophets work. That, that's usually along the lines of what you mentioned. Um, most of us are raised with that, and most of us are continue to be taught that today. Um, and, and it's not that I necessarily have a problem with that, Bill. Um, it's from a young age, I don't think that's that, that's necessarily problematic. Um, it's a, it's somewhat of a simple view, um, and, and one that I think. Uh, Children can can easily grasp, um, but I think as we get older um, and our different quorums meetings and uh, different uh, settings for for older individuals in the church, we need to be able to to have these deeper, more nuanced conversations um, and uh, not be held back as much um, by some of the same uh, perspectives that we were taught as, as children. We need to develop them further. Uh, so in terms of prophets, um, I, I see a lot of good happening um, among youth my age uh, from a younger and younger age, uh, but then also, of course, from individuals such as uh, Mason and, and Givens, uh, among others, uh, who are wanting us to revisit these these paradigms and, and kind of look at these questions again. So my view of prophets is, is one that's nuanced. Um, and I can just say from because of my background in interfaith and religious studies, um, I have quite a bit of sympathy and um, uh, appreciation for the leaders of other faiths as well, Bill. Um, and uh, many of them, you know, I, I see as uh, genuinely inspired, um, not necessarily as uh, uh, in the same way as maybe a prophet of my own tradition, um, but uh you know, I, I'm I'm starting to see at this point in my life 
that there are many individuals that God calls. There are many individuals who he speaks to, um, and some of them we elevate to uh, kind of a special status that we consider uh, to be a prophet. Um, And in ways they, they, they serve to be somewhat of, uh, of shepherds of uh, God's flock, if you will. Um, but within, within our faith tradition, uh, you know, they also hold a, a position of uh, ecclesiastical significance and organizational um, authority uh, within the church. So when I think of prophet, I think of somewhat of the natural experience all of us uh, take part in throughout life. Uh, one where we grapple and wrestle with the divine um, and struggle to make sense of it. Uh, this, the, the perspective that, uh, that you mentioned of God coming into the tent and speaking with us uh, and us speaking back and having conversations, um, I think internal conversations like that uh, can and do take place, um, but it's not always as clear uh, of what God is trying to tell us. The, the process of revelation I see as one uh, that is where God comes to our level. He has to bring himself down to us uh, in order to speak to us. And he speaks to us in, in symbols and metaphors and parables and um, mannerisms that, that we understand both religiously, culturally, and personally. Um, and through that process, he has to uh, condescend to our level, uh, if you will in order for us to understand. And so we receive the message from God. Um, We have to interpret that message internally. uh, And then in turn, we have to be able to express what that message was. Um, And and so I see this kind of three-pronged process of just revelation in general, of God speaking to us, of us interpreting that message, and then of us being able to share that message with others. Um, And very much the same thing that uh, that prophets must undergo and um and i think that's where part of the nuance comes in uh this this understanding that prophets when they speak to us uh you know i i I do believe that uh, they they can speak for us on god's behalf um but there's always multiple parties involved in this process it's never just um just god speaking straight through the mouth of the prophet um verbatim if that makes sense. Um, I, I, I don't believe that, uh, you know, the prophets are suddenly uh, seized upon by God and forced to say word for word exactly what God is intending to say. Um, I, I think it's that process that, that takes place rather where uh, they are impressed with messages. They need to be able to interpret those messages and then they relay those messages to us. Uh, and in that process, um, you have a, a mixture of uh, the human and the divine. And so I think that's where, at times, um, revelations maybe aren't as clear as they could be, uh, or sometimes uh, the contemporary cultural or uh, personal perspectives of the prophet might be mixed into that message as well. Um, They'll express it in language in terms that they're familiar with, um, I don't know. Is there, uh, uh, is this kind of the direction you're hoping to, to take it though? I, I know you can edit this part out, but, uh, what, what else are, are you hoping for me to touch on? So that's good. I mean, 
I completely agree with you. Like, if we're gonna create a, a framework that is reasonable for people to participate in Mormonism and to hold these, these top leaders to be prophet seers and revelators, like, we have to bring the expectation down that these guys are having regular conversations face to face with Jesus Christ. That, that, that paradigm doesn't logically fit with the historical messiness of, of the mistakes that get made and the sometimes, um, inability to let go of old paradigms that later on get disavowed or, or, or done away with. But I, I want to ask you, I want to go one step further into that. And, and I hold that same view. Like I hope in these men as prophets, seers and revelators. And, and so in some ways, like I hold the very view you do. And so in pushing back against you, I'm also pushing back against myself. But I want to ask you, so you recognize like, and I know you get this, like Pope Francis is inspired. Pope Francis says really wise stuff. And it seems like the man has a personal relationship with God he leads his faith, and we in Mormonism have this flexibility, and I don't think we use it often, but in our theology, in our doctrine, is the ability to say that there are others outside of our church who are in some ways called and authorized by God to give moral light to the people that they have stewardship over, correct? Yes, definitely. And, yeah, and so, but I want to push back in, in asking this, which is, if I put Pope Francis on one hand, and I put President Monson on the other, like, can you, and again, it's okay if you can't, can you explain what you see as the perceptible difference? And, and I'll simply say, like, for me, I don't, and but I still hope that there's something there that I don't see. But could you maybe explain what you see as the perceptible difference between, say, Pope Francis and President Monson in terms of what makes one different than the other? Um, well, in, in simple terms, um, one belongs to my flock and the other does not. Um, of course, we all belong to the same human flock, um, but the, the faith tradition and community that I affiliate with, you know, uh, is Mormonism. And uh, Pope Francis, I see, is presiding over a, a different flock. Um, and so in that terms, um, you know, not being Catholic myself, um, I'm going to naturally hold uh, Monson in a different sphere of influence than I will Pope Francis. Although, uh, of course, I'm fully ready to benefit from the uh, spiritual teachings of Pope Francis that uh, are compatible within my own faith. I think there's many. Um, of, of course, the other aspect of it uh, would be in terms of priesthood authority um, that, that I would perceive one individual having over the other. Um, and, you know, I, I have a fairly nuanced uh, view of that as well. Um, I, I see priesthood as uh, being of God's ability, um, of the ability that God gives us to act in his name, right? That, that's a pretty standard answer, the authority that God gives us to act in his name. Uh, but what that entails is um, we're able to do things um organize things, uh, speak to each other, um, within an authorized, um, I guess, I guess sphere, um, or capacity where uh, God is able to, to move through us. Uh, we're able to set boundaries of our own faith tradition. 
Um, and I'm not opposed to the idea of there being uh, varied degrees of this authority, if that makes sense. I wouldn't necessarily call it priesthood, but I definitely believe that God can inspire other people, uh, that God can, uh, in the many Christian and even um, non-Christian traditions that uh, invoke in prayers for various blessings, healing blessings, miracles, things like that. Um, I definitely believe that God performs miracles outside of our faith, um, that he can heal individuals outside of our faith and that he does. Um, and, um, and so in that sense, I, I see our, our unique priesthood authority uh, as being our authorization to carry out the, the saving ordinances that are, that are part of our faith. Um, those, those rituals and um, sacraments that we engage with um, that are necessary for, for us as Latter-day Saints to enter into covenants uh, to gain a more uh, enriching and fuller experience with the divine, um, and one that uh, we do believe that uh, all humanity eventually uh, will have the same opportunity pa- to pass through. Um, as for right now, uh, our time should just be spent really worrying about our- ourselves. I mean, I think you've spoken about this before, Bill, um, at the rate that we are performing baptisms for the dead or ordinances on behalf of the dead. Um, I think at one point you, you, you said something along the lines of like, just for, if we were to be doing this for just China alone, uh, we would have to increase our, our rate by, I don't know how many baptisms a day, uh, but definitely millions upon millions, you know? Um, so if the intent right now is for us to be trying to, uh, play catch up, uh, we're just too few, uh, we're too, uh, there's not enough Latter-day Saints to do this work. And I think, um, there's a, there's a quote by Orson F. Whitney, who was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve back in the day, said that, uh, God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of his great and marvelous work. Uh, the Latter-day Saints cannot do it all. It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. Our part in it is the greatest. We have the gospel and the priesthood with a mission to gather Israel, build the new Jerusalem, and prepare the way for the advent of the King of Kings. Um, and this duty has been laid upon us because we belong to the house of Israel, um, Earlier in the quote, he says that perhaps the Lord needs such men on the outside of his church to help it along. Uh, they are among its auxiliaries and can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. Uh, I think that that point right there is especially interesting. They are among its auxiliaries and can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. Or in other words, even within the church, they can do more good outside of it. That's an interesting concept, though. He goes on to say, yeah, and the same is true of the priesthood and its auxiliaries inside the church. Hence, some are drawn into the fold and receive a testimony of the truth, while others remain unconverted for the present. The beauties and glories of the gospel being veiled temporarily further from their view for a wise purpose. The Lord will open their eyes in his own due time. Um, so I think about, this is a question I ask myself uh, pretty regularly um, that uh, has definitely worked towards uh, leading me to this kind of nuanced viewpoint uh, when it comes to membership in the church. Um, Because I think if we are to assume that God wants people in mortality to be raised within the LDS church, this restored gospel uh, that so many people uh, see just so exclusively as the one true church, um, you know, the only way to happiness, the only way for X, Y, and Z then God must be utterly failing at that because basic demographics alone would let you know that, uh, you know, uh, percentage wise, we have maybe 15 and a half 
Latter-day, million Latter-day Saints on the membership roll. Um, you contrast that with like seven and a half billion people worldwide. I mean, the, that's a, that's a very minute percentage, you know, that is, that's around 0.002%, I'm pretty sure. Um, and if you're con- going to contrast that with all the individuals who have ever lived or yet will live, that number becomes exponentially smaller. So I think, I think that alone can change some paradigms in the sense that um, we need to stop seeing ourselves as God's only chosen people. Um, I think it is a, a very spiritually arrogant position when individuals in the church um, have an attitude uh, of being blessed so much more than anyone else in life just because of the family that they were born into, because of the faith that they were raised in. Um, I don't attribute it to luck. I think there's a, there's, there's a reason that all of us are born into our respective families and, and faith. Um, and I think Whitney, uh, with the quote I just shared, would, would feel much the same. There are people who, inside the church, this is where they can do their greatest good, just as much as there are so many more um, times of people outside of the church with, who are in a position that God uh, has placed them uh, for his wise purposes. Um, and I think we need to recognize that and understand that more um, because it brings, it brings value to what they're experiencing. You know, it gives purpose to it. Uh, it's not the bright light of the gospel and then the darkness everywhere else. It is uh, the unique faith tradition um, and experience that comes as a Latter-day Saint uh, and the, the truth uh, and revelation that we have access to, but then also the, all the rest of the good that's in the world as well. Um, this allows us to validate others' experiences to a, a higher degree um, and, and value them in the sense that God, like you said, is working through Pope Francis just as much as he's working through President Monson. Um, these are shepherds over different flocks. Um, and I think both shepherds are doing great things for the world. Um, an individual, of course, like me, can, can see these shepherds in, in different you know, areas of authority or, or positions of influence. Um, but I, I don't at all uh, take away from the influence that Pope Francis has, that the good that he's done um, and uh, the, the position that I believe God has placed him in to, to better the world uh, by leading uh, the, the flock of the Roman Catholics, if you will. Um, so I, I, I think this is one, uh, one thing that the rising generations of Latter-day Saints will have to, to recognize um, to a higher degree. Uh, it, it brings a richness and an appreciation for, for others that I, I think is, is very uh, necessary and, uh, you know, I, I would say very comfortably placed within our own faith tradition. I, I find quite a few quotes like this that, that can support this view. Uh, so I don't, I don't necessarily see this uh, opposed at all to my individual faith as a Mormon. Right. I, so I want to, I'm going to kind of rephrase what I think I'm hearing and feel free to just say like, no, or yeah. Um, it, it feels like what you're saying is, look, if I'm looking for prophecy, if I'm looking for revelation, if I'm looking for seeing that, that prophetic mantle outwardly, that's perceptible, that there's very little, if any, difference between President Monson, who I'm a member of the LDS Church, and so I sustain him as the prophetic voice to me, but 
in terms of someone who's a Catholic and looking for prophecy, seeing in Revelation, that something similar, or maybe even in some ways the same in terms of inspired ideas and teachings is coming through Pope Francis as well. And so for a Catholic, Pope Francis has a prophetic voice, just like for Mormons that President Monson has a prophetic voice, that the difference is in stewardship and perhaps in differences in authority. And that may be either imperceptible because it's so small, or maybe um, both have different responsibilities but both are just as important in the eyes of God in the work that they're accomplishing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you know, and, and of course I would expound a little bit more in terms of authority. Um, authority is an interesting concept, uh, just because in some ways it is in the eye of the beholder. Um, so the authority uh, that President Monson has over me uh, is very much determined by the authority that I give him over me. Um, an individual who doesn't believe in President Monson isn't going to feel um, moved to necessarily listen to what he has to say to regard him as a prophet or things like that. And that's not to make him not a prophet. Um, but, uh, you know, I think when it, we speak of keys, we speak of uh, these men being prophets, seers and revelators. You know, I, I do believe that. Um, and if one is to believe in, in the nature of the saving ordinances as well uh, and some of the um, the, the, the other areas of, uh, priesthood leadership, um, and authority that, that God has given these men, uh, naturally that comes with keys as well. Um, the, the keys to lead the church, uh, uh, there, there's several, um, but Pope Francis doesn't, doesn't hold, uh, the totality of these keys that exist. He holds the majority or he, he holds a fair number of them, but, uh, uh, we must remember that there's keys such as, uh, what is it, like resurrection, um, that uh, I, I don't believe that President Monson necessarily has or, or claimed to have. Is that correct, Bill? Right. Yeah, there's still keys, President Kimball says, that the prophet of the church does not have. Exactly. So, um, you know, we can we can see them as holding various keys. We can have a testimony of that. We can believe in that. Um, and, and I do. Um, and so in terms of, of what keys God gives who in the world, uh, I can easily believe that uh, God has given President Monson certain keys and authority. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the other part of that question that comes naturally is, well, can other individuals be given keys? Can other individuals be given, you know, certain kinds of authority? Um, these are conversations we haven't necessarily had within Mormonism. I think that'd be, that'd be quite a big task to, uh, and determine which faith leaders have which keys and which ones have which authority, you know, and, and almost play a, a rank or a hierarchy when it comes to the world's spiritual leaders. Um, and I, I don't think that's, that's a conversation we could, we could have um, with, with any kind of full confidence, uh, just seeing as these traditions themselves are different, and so they're going to express themselves differently. Um, but like you were saying, yeah, I, I, I do believe that uh, God is working through Pope Francis and Pope Monson alike. Um, and within my life, like you said, uh, I, I do believe that, uh, Pope Francis is a prophet, a seer and a revelator that he has, uh, um, certain kinds of, of authority, um, and influence over me. And I look to him as a, as a spiritual leader within my own tradition. Right. So, so their keys are different or, or perhaps Monson, President Monson has keys and Pope Francis doesn't both are prophetic voices. And in terms of just the prophetic voice, 
there wouldn't be a huge difference between these two? I mean, that, that that's an interesting question. Um, I I might not say that both are prophetic voices because I don't think that prophets are always speaking as prophets. Um, if one does hold that view, that can get problematic pretty quickly, as uh, as any basic understanding of Mormon history can show. But uh, <laughs> um, I do believe that both can be inspired. Uh, that both are likely often inspired. Uh, I definitely, you know, look to President Monson as a, as a prophet and uh, see much of what he says as inspired. Um, you know, I'm sure there's there's times in his life where he hasn't spoken as a prophet. Um, I don't I don't think I'm prepared off the top of my head to readily identify uh, what what an instance like that might look like. Um, but in terms of what God is trying to accomplish, I see this process of God speaking to prophets and moving through them and and uh, inspiring them, uh, like I said earlier, he comes down to our level as humans, uh, and he's going to speak to us in terms that we can understand. And I think um, many times that comes through uh, speaking in symbols and metaphors and religious vernacular uh, that we will be familiar with. Uh, and so the prophecies that uh, Thomas S. Monson has and has made, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say are of the same type that Pope Francis might make. Um, Pope Francis, when, when he is speaking as an, as an inspired individual, um, of course, will express this in, in terms familiar with, uh, with those of the Catholic tradition. Um, and uh, it'll likely be um, accompanied by, by teachings within uh, Roman Catholic doctrine uh, in line with uh, the magisterium uh, and whatnot, um, because he's speaking to a different audience. Um, and so I think he's going to say things that are that are differently, but that that doesn't uh, that doesn't take away from whether or not he can speak as 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 an inspired individual, as a, as a prophet, if you will. Right. I I want to ask, and I know we're spending a lot of time on this topic, but it's interesting, and I think even if we only cover two or three things, like it's interesting to see how this plays out. Um, I recognize, like I would agree with you. I just want to preface my question with with my personal view. I agree with you that prophets don't always speak as prophets and that really dramatic revelation may be few and far between, which I think you would hold that view as well. And so I don't, I don't have the expectation that every time President Monson stands up every six months and gives a conference talk that I'm going to hear something extremely profound. Maybe today all he's going to do is read a poem and tell us to love each other. And, and that in and of itself is inspired in some way if it helps us to live our, our lives better. But you, you said something in terms of the prophecies of President Monson. And I'm just curious, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but do you perceive that President Monson has given a prophecy? That, like, has, could you give like an example of like, there's prophetic voice. And, and again, it's okay if he hasn't. Like, I don't expect that. And I don't think most progressive Mormons expect it necessarily like it doesn't have to happen with every single prophet in the church but do you see president monson as having given a prophecy is there something i could point to to say like oh yeah there it is that's something he said where he's prophesying of something that's going to happen in the future and and now it's occurred um when it comes to prophecy um personally i don't just narrow uh the the boundaries of what it means to give prophecy within uh, only uh, perhaps a definition that 
that has to do with uh, you know foretelling the future, um, speaking of events that will come to pass. Um, I think often when we think of prophecy, especially within our own tradition, uh, these kind of magnificent uh, events and uh, from scripture uh, where, you know, you might have Samuel the Lamanite talking about the coming birth of, you know, uh, the, the coming birth of Christ, um, you know, these, these huge events or, or just other prophets that might uh, foretell something uh, on, on, a, on a smaller, more individual scale. Um, that's usually what we associate with prophecy. I, I, I would tend to nuance that as well, Bill. Um, so as far as uh, foretelling um, what the future will hold, um, nothing, nothing explicit, you know, exactly explicit comes to mind. Uh, I, I can, I can say that I've heard most of the church leaders speak in terms of perhaps you can call it general prophecy uh, that if you do this, then this will happen. Uh, kind of a cause and effect um, type discussion that's that's very uh, common within the scriptures. Um, Something more common to like general, um, what practical advice, right? Like like if you sure, love your neighbor, sure. you're going to be happier, and if you if you care for the poor, then then you know you're going to be blessed from on high. Those kinds of things. Yeah, sure. Uh, things like that. Um, I, I think there's plenty of Latter-day Saints that would look to um, the the document of the family proc- proclamation as somewhat of an inspired work. Um, it's not canonized, um, but uh, there, there's many who look to it uh, as being inspired and, and in some ways prophetic. Um, and uh, and I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea that uh, statements or or positions taken by church leaders can be prophetic in nature. Um, of course, they would have to be uh, proven to be prophetic later by by certain circumstances, um, by by things that go on in the world. Um, but I do believe that their their messages that they share with us uh, are directed by the Lord um, most, if not all the time. Uh, and in that sense, they can be prophetic in preparing us to. Uh, change our lives in certain ways to um, to believe certain things uh, to prepare for certain things um, you know individuals uh, I, I was rather young for this uh, so you might be able to speak more to it Bill um, but uh, at times such as the the recession uh, back in what was it like 2004 um, did you feel like there was a, a certain number of general authorities before that and in years or decades before that leading up um, speaking to, I mean, there's always been, uh, leaders of the church speaking in terms of, uh, you know, having your, uh, your emergency food supply gathered, uh, and things like that. Um, and I know individuals who, who might've listened to messages like that, uh, in, in the years just coming up to the, uh, recession in the United States, um, did feel that those messages were, were prophetic, uh, because then something happened in terms of the economy uh, that brought these uh, these admonitions by church leaders uh, to a, a practical effect, um, where many individuals uh, felt like because they were prepared, uh, because they listened to church leaders, they were able to uh, get through a hardship um, easier than than they might have if they had not have been prepared. Um, and so I think there, there's multiple. Uh, 
perspectives um, and approaches one can take uh, when it comes to what prophecy entails. And I don't think it's always explicitly, uh, you know, in, in the year such and such, this will come to pass. Uh, we often we often think in, in terms like that. Um, but I don't think we should be expecting that that much. I think I think there's plenty of examples from the scriptures of individuals who are uh, prophets or you know, prophets, seers and revelators or, or inspired men of God uh, who. I would say there's plenty of them who don't necessarily offer explicit prophecies in terms of telling the future. Uh, that's not always a role that they're asked to, to fill. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea of, of, uh, of there not being issued these, these grand prophecies uh, from the pulpit every time we meet for general conference or, or even every year or every couple of years. Um, it's according to the Lord's timing. So, um, you know, I, I trust in that. If we expect anything different, though, we're going to be we're going to be disappointed pretty quickly. Yeah, and, and I think that's the key: is that if we set ourselves up to have a certain expectation based on based on the limited stories of the Old Testament, right, which are these highlighted moments throughout time, uh, like you say, you're going to be disappointed pretty quickly. I want to jump to to Book of Mormon historicity. Just because we don't have a, you know, maybe maybe we can spend another half an hour, maybe even forty five minutes or so talking. But uh, Book of Mormon historicity, Bushman and Sam Brown and others are pointing to the idea that there is way more nineteenth century material in the Book of Mormon than we currently have made space for. And in the past, we've framed this as an entirely ancient document. And anything 19th century is coincidence and anything ancient is intentional. And the critic plays the other card, right? Where they say everything that is ancient is coincidence and everything that's 19th century is intentional. And it seems like Bushman and Brown and others are pointing to some kind of middle space. I wonder if maybe you could articulate what that middle space is. Like, how do you see the Book of Mormon? How much of it is ancient? How much of it is Joseph? Putting his own data, his own story, his own experience, his own awareness of the preaching going on in his neighborhood and the books that he's read, how much of that is he putting into the book that that looks like to the average reader that it's part of the story, and yet it's actually Joseph Smith's story going in there? Well, uh, of course I can't offer percentages or, or things like that um, of uh, the breakdown, um, because I, I don't think one could necessarily establish that completely. Um, I, I do fall in the same camp, like you mentioned, of individuals such as Bushman and Brown. Uh, Blake Osler is another um, who see and recognize the presence of both 19th century material, but also uh, evidences of antiquity uh, within the Book of Mormon text. Um, there are many aspects of the Book of Mormon, uh, which which I see. Uh, you've elaborated on, on quite a few on your show, and, and there's plenty others that uh, other individuals have spoken to, but uh, that I see as uh, very strong evidences of, uh, of its ancient origin. Um, and likewise, I don't think any person can, any informed individual can really say that there is no, there's absolutely no 19th century material in there uh, because the first and most obvious source of 19th century material is in the King James translation of the Bible. Um, 
that's present throughout a fair portion of, of the Book of Mormon text. Um, it utilizes a similar vernacular. Uh, there's, there's individuals who have argued that uh, the Book of Mormon language actually predates the King James language. Um, uh, some of their evidence has been a little convincing on that um, as far as arguing that instead the, the Book of Mormon utilizes, uh, I think it's around uh, 15th century um, English in terms of its, its syntax and uh, structure. But, um, I mean, first and foremost, an individual has to recognize that there are long portions of the Bible quoted within the Book of Mormon. That's something the Book of Mormon authors uh, readily express and speak to for themselves. Um, so for any individual to say that Isaiah is not actually quoted uh, or that uh, the Bible is not drawn from as a source, uh, either anciently or modernly, um, as part of the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, they, they don't understand what the text is actually saying for itself. Uh, but then, of course, we have other sources, too, that uh, individuals look to um, as potential candidates of influence uh, on Joseph Smith, whether uh, whether being concrete sources that he drew from uh, in terms of words and line, sentences and, and even ideas, or, or else in terms of just general language. Um, uh, of course, historically, there's been a, a handful of uh, books or texts or or places where people have have said that uh, Joseph Smith plagiarized from, um, I don't necessarily see any of those as particularly convincing in and of themselves. Uh, I'm not really convinced with the with the plagiarism model. Um, I've read texts like the the Spalding manuscripts, the View of the Hebrews, and and uh, others. I'm I'm in the middle of looking into the Great War or the Late War right now, um, but. Uh, you know, with each of these texts that I've looked into, I, I haven't been too convinced that uh, any of them are just uh, kind of a, a cut and paste um, candidate for the source of the Book of Mormon. Um, and, and there's different aspects of the translation process uh, that throw complexity into this issue as well. Uh, the first that uh, the Book of Mormon is the product of a dictation uh, that Joseph Smith is is dictating um, the text of the Book of Mormon uh, through this process and having scribes write it down for him. Um, that throws complexity into it. Of course, you have accounts by by Emma and others um, saying that there were no other books or texts that Joseph Smith was drawing from in front of them. I mean, Emma goes so far as to, to reiterate and say that uh, if he had them, like she would have known about them. There's no way he could have he could have hidden them from her. Um, as, as far as she knows. Um, and so, yeah, the, the model that, uh, Blake Osler, um, proposed back in the eighties, um, to this effect was the expansion model of the book of Mormon. Um, you have other models such as the, the kind of tight translation, a loose translation. Um, but I, I, I think the expansion model is the most sustainable, uh, because it takes that middle ground, like you mentioned, um, it goes between uh, both the staunch apologist and uh, the fierce critic um, and recognizes uh, the the solid ground offered by both positions in terms of uh, 19th century influence, but then also um, ancient, uh, witnesses of an, an ancient source. Um, and so earlier when I was speaking about uh, prophets and the nature of revelation, um, God speaks to us 
we interpret his message and then we relay that message to others. Um, that is the way that I see revelation um, and that I believe uh, took place in terms of the Book of Mormon. Of course, there's still debate um, over this um, and how exactly Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon and what that translation process entailed, what it looks like. Um, he simply described it uh, for the majority of his life as coming forth from the gift and power of God. What does that exactly entail? You know, that, 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 that's somewhat vague. I mean, of course, it speaks to the miraculous nature of the translation, um, but in terms of methodology or uh, the exact uh, process used um, for receiving the text, um, it, it's one that I'm seeing a renewed uh, emphasis among LDS scholars in trying to understand and come to grips with and reanalyze um, because it's very likely, and I've been seeing this, uh, that our old paradigms on what this process looks like um, and, uh, and how it took place don't capture the full picture. I mean, throughout, throughout a lot of Latter-day Saint history, we failed to even emphasize the, the presence of seer stones within the translation process, you know, and that's something that uh, the church uh, and the faith community is starting to uh, recognize and include as part of the uh, the mainstream narrative of the translation process. Uh, that's something that we didn't always uh, speak to all the time. Um, many individuals had the view that, you know, Smith would have the plates uh, in plain sight on the table. You know, uh, there might be a sheet between him and the, uh, the, the scribe. Um, but for the most part, you know, Smith had the breastplate and the Urim of Thummim or you know, maybe other instruments uh, or maybe w was using nothing at all and was simply dictating the, the Book of Mormon text. And we know from from the historical record that uh, that fails to capture the full essence of what this process, uh, you know, contained. Um, and nowadays we're I, I'm seeing a lot more comfort in speaking towards a hat and the seer stone. Uh, which I, I think is much more sustainable uh, and much more authentic towards capturing what this process looks like. I don't think it takes away at all from the miraculous nature of it. I'm completely comfortable with, with adopting uh, th this view. Uh, it's something I've, I've known about for, for quite a while now. Um, but, uh, you know, I, the presence of a hat and a cedar stone uh, makes the, the Book of Mormon no, no less miraculous than than the breastplate and the Urim, of th Urim and Thummim, in my opinion. Right. Um, perspective you're holding. I want to ask you how you think of others in a different perspective. So for the, for the younger generation who are coming up through the church, there's going to be a segment of them who are going to look at the data and they're going to arrive at the decision that the Book of Mormon is not historical. And and I'm, and I'm one of those, as an older person, I'm one of those who leans strongly towards seeing the Book of Mormon as a product of the 19th century, but I still see it as scripture in the same way that when I look at like the Bhagavad Gita, I know it's fiction. I know it's not real stories. And yet I absolutely honor that book as scripture to the Hindus. And, and even in some ways find inspiration reading from it myself. Some, some Latter-day Saints are going to arrive at that decision and it feels, again, I know there's maybe a small space, but it feels like that space is really limited 
for someone to hold a non-historical view of the Book of Mormon, yet to still find it to give them inspiration and willing to sustain it as scripture? Or do you feel like as a church, we're going to have to learn to get comfortable with that group? Or is it, is it really the best path to have some rigidity there and say, like, if, if we're going to be in the tribe, this is one of the things we can't give up. Um, what is your thoughts there on, on that idea? Well, I, I, I can say just generally, I would like to see uh, moving forward um, the the church as a whole, uh, membership um, especially included, become more comfortable um, creating space for people not like them who don't have the uh, the predominant uh, viewpoint within the church, uh, the, the same attitude, the same type of testimony. Um, I would very much like to see the term uh, Mormon become one uh, synonymous with uh, the word Jew within the Jewish community, um, where one can be a Jew ethnically, culturally, uh, and also in terms of belief, the beliefs can vary quite a bit. Uh, one can be a secular Jew, all these different things. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have members of this faith community still recognizing each other as valid parts of their community. Um, I would like to see that happen with our church um, because I think that better captures the the complexity that comes with um, with the individual human experience in terms of uh, grappling with the divine uh, in terms of all of our shared spiritual journeys. Um, we're all in different places. We're all going to be walking down different paths and we need to be able to, to kind of recognize and make space for that. Um, that's not to say I don't believe that there should be some type of orthodoxy pushed for or any, uh, boundaries drawn. I think that's important for a religion uh, or else quickly uh, the community forgets about what they identify around. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly I, I, I don't think uh, an anything goes type mentality should be uh, in- entertained, but we should be um, aware and charitable towards those of different, um, towards those at different parts of their own faith uh, um, journey. We should make space for them. And uh, um, so long as they are, you know, bettering each other, bettering themselves, uh, growing closer to Christ, um, and still, you know, perhaps uh, still ascribing to certain points of orthodoxy, um, I think they should be completely accepted and and welcomed as as members. Um, I, I, I can say that none of us have covenanted to view the Book of Mormon as a historical document. None of us have have ever made that explicit covenant within church settings, um, within the, the temple recommend interview, which is really like the closest thing we get to a statement of orthodoxy within the faith. Um, it does not ask explicitly whether or not we see the Book of Mormon as a, an ancient document. Um, and so I would argue that even now in the current structure of the church, uh, that this isn't uh, something that an individual has to maintain in order to stay worthy for the temple, um, participate in callings, and, and be an active member of the community. Of course, I think uh, in terms of whether or not they're uh, accepted and welcomed by other members, uh, or if other members feel comfortable around them, that's a different story. But uh, as far as the current structure we have in place right now, uh, I don't see this as um, a, a point that's required for one to be in good standing with the church. It certainly doesn't fall within the uh, the, the correlated narrative, um, but I don't see it as one that one 
I don't see it as a point that one has to have uh, currently within our faith tradition in order to be an active part of it. Right. Totally understand that. Um, I, I want to, and this is really on my mind right now because of general conference. And I just recorded an episode where I dive into elder Oaks talk and I want to, do you mind, do you mind if I just add something really quick to uh, the, the previous one? Um, sorry for cutting you off. Um, I, I just wanted to add my, my personal thoughts uh, in regards to that position, though. Um, just as much as I want to make space for individuals who might have that view uh, at that current point in their uh, faith uh, development, um, you know, it's not one that I necessarily uh, agree with. Um, and I think this is important because regardless of whether or not I agree with it, I still want there to be space for others to believe differently. You know, I want to... Uh, to create, make church a, a space where we're comfortable disagreeing with each other. Um, I had a get to know you exercise in Institute recently uh, where uh, the teacher asked us to go around the room uh, and say one or two words that we think are dangerous. Okay. Uh, and it was a very interesting exercise. Um, quite a few students in the room, um, they go around uh, and, um, they're sharing these words uh, or, or ideas um, that, that impact them or that they see as particularly uh, powerful or dangerous, like I mentioned. Um, and when it got to me, I said, uh, saying I disagree, uh, and I elaborated uh, because within church settings, we're not comfortable enough saying I disagree around each other and, uh, you know, keeping, keeping the, the air in the room relatively comfortable um, I, I know you've had experiences, Bill, uh, where you might have spoken your mind uh, in different capacities that have uh, perhaps made created some awkward tension uh, within uh, maybe your individual core meeting or otherwise. Um, I know I, yeah, I, I know I've done the same um, where I'm just like, whoa, 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 wait, hold on, people. I I disagree with this, and here's my perspective. Not all members are comfortable hearing those two words. Uh, they kind of seize up when you say, I disagree, and then, you, you know, you continue to speak. Um, so just in general, I'd like to see a church become uh, a more welcome environment. The, the notion of disagreeing, I think one can be completely faithful and and uh, disagree on certain issues. Um, there's, a, there's kind of a, a cliche saying that uh, if you have two Jews in a room, you're going to have three opinions. Um, I would like to see that uh, expressed and realized more and more with that in our own faith tradition. Um, I, I think that's healthy to make space, uh, church, uh, an environment where we can engage each other, where we can push each other's paradigms, uh, be comfortable with that, um, and grow together spiritually rather than um, uh, create a, a spiritual echo chamber where we are remaining static in our understanding of what the gospel is. Um, so I, I, just, I just wanted to add that, um, if that's all right. Beautiful. No, beautiful. And I love that, right? Like you're holding a certain view, but you're going to welcome somebody else in the room to also offer their perspective. And and there's so little of that in some of these wards and stakes. And, 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 and I don't mean to be offensive to leadership, but in some ways when you stand up and you say questions are honored, but opposition is not, like – we need to frame that because you can't just throw these these little catchphrases out and then not expect 
members of the church who who want to be loyal and who think there's this just what this one story we tell about ourselves not to overreach in how they use such a phrase and and so I agree with you like thank you um we need more space to raise our hand and say I disagree and like you say for everyone in the room to not get uncomfortable um I want to talk a moment about polygamy and LGBT issues and I want to talk about them using Elder Oaks talk from General Conference and to frame it with with what he said. So he gives this talk and he's he's essentially trying to get the membership to dig their heels in around the proclamation to the world. And there's two things he kind of goes after that feel illogical to me. And and I want to get your thoughts on polygamy and and homosexuality. Uh Elder Oaks makes this idea that the doctrine of the church, the, this thing that the, the, the proclamation of the world is defending and protecting is that marriage, the only appropriate marriage is one that is legally and lawfully, uh, a legal and lawful union between a man and a woman. And when I look at our history, the problem is with that definition, Joseph Smith is an apostate. With that definition, Brigham Young's an apostate. With that definition, John Taylor's an apostate. And it's easy to say like, yeah, well, God gave different direction back then, but now he's set in stone. And I, that feels uncomfortable. Like, like we ought to leave room for God to still make another change. Like God could come by tomorrow and say, you know what, guys, actually we got it wrong again. And I fully love my LGBT children. And I fully welcome them in. And it seems like we, we always, as Mormons, as an institution, we always want to draw lines and say, here's where it is. We go no further. And then 20 years later, we've gone further and we've gone further on cremation and birth control, women's suffrage, race and priesthood and temple ban, polygamy, um, even LGBT issues. We framed them so differently 20 years ago. We used to think that if someone masturbated, it led to homosexuality and, Right. And so we realize like if there's one thing that's constant about Mormonism, it's that Mormonism is always changing and Mormonism says it never changes. And yet it does. So in terms of polygamy in the past and LGBT issues in the future, would it be fair to say that you and, and maybe the millennials coming up, the younger generation coming up, maybe and again, I know you don't speak for everyone. You speak for yourself, but at least to use you as a gauge, is it fair to say like, you know, we did that in the past and that might've been a mistake. Maybe, just maybe. And that we, in the, that the position we hold on the LGBT issue right now might be a mistake. And maybe God will bring in some difference and that you're open and that perhaps the younger generation is open to whoever God is that he's more inclusive of the very core of who human beings are and the messiness of how we deal with each other. I don't even know if there's, if there's a, a specific question there. I'm just, I'm begging, I guess, Jackson, for us as Mormons to let go of a little bit of our certainty and to make space for God to speak and change something in this very moment. I, well, I, I, I would affirm that that is a basic, um, attribute of our faith is and one that I that I hold to be very important though is uh that we are a faith based on continual revelation uh that you know the very the very uh, clarion call of the restoration uh in some ways was that the heavens are not closed 
uh, that uh, God still speaks to man, that he can still lead and inspire us uh, just as much today as he, he could in, in ancient and biblical times. Um, and so I think for for any individual in the church to be completely dogmatic uh, in certain areas, I think there's, there's some areas that uh, um, are prone to experience less change or development than others. Um, you know, for example, I, I don't see us, you know, tomorrow receiving a revelation that uh, makes us get rid of Jesus as being the, the savior and redeemer of the world. You know, that, that, that's something that I think would just be too, too drastic and foundational of a leap um, for that to take place. But in terms of revealed truths and, and things like that, uh, the way that our church operates, uh, we do need to be open uh, to future changes taking place uh, or just the possibility that they can take place. Um, when we cut ourselves off from the possibility um, that certain revelations can come, um, you know, I think it, it's really limiting our own perspective as members of the church um, by making our faith one that's, that's static rather than revelatory. Um, and so Do in terms think of... It's- Oh, let, me, let me stop you. Let me stop you. Yeah. Is it fair to say, like, again, I, I want to be respectful to Elder Oaks, but is it fair to say that when you throw out statements like, this is the position we hold, without contextualizing it with the fact that we didn't hold that position in the past, and God changed it, and God has a right to change that position in the future, like, do we do some... do by? Do we do some in, um, injustice by compelling our membership to see that this is some kind of eternal idea when in all honesty, we never really know, right? Because like John Taylor was adamant that polygamy was going to stay on the earth in mortality regardless of what that darn government did. And just four years after he receives the 1886 revelation – that, by the way, was never canonized, Wilford Woodruff issues a manifesto that slowly enters a stage of getting rid of it. Like, like things can change in a moment's uh, uh, notice uh, of in course, Mormonism. Of course, of course. Um, and, and, yet, I, and yet they hold this position that it's, like, like it was held, like this position is like, this is what it is, this is what we're going to defend, this is what we're going to hold. And, and when you ask the Latter-day Saints to entrench on a position, doesn't it make it harder to actually make the change, if there's ever a change coming from the Lord? No, yeah, I, I, I believe so. Um, well, we see this as a natural result of the correlation period within the church, how um, certain members in leadership and, of course, uh, uh, a quite a few individuals within membership um, insisted on certain understandings and perspectives, uh, black and white uh, paradigms, on, uh, on gospel topics um, that I think have very much affected uh, generations of, of individuals in the church uh, in, in very negative ways, um, ways that are causing uh, crises of faith now. I mentioned just the, the basic understanding of the translation process of the Book of Mormon, uh, one to where even though we are moving into a narrative that's more accepting and uh, emphasizing of the presence of seer stones, that's still causing problems for certain members. Um, and the reason is, it's not that seer stones are somewhat less believable than any other miraculous event in the church. It's just the fact that this is a new understanding uh, that's now being 
that's now replacing one that was so adamantly entrenched into the minds of members for so many years. And so I see many individuals of, of uh, the Gen X, Gen Xers, baby boomers, um, and even, you know, uh, various millennials who now that this new perspective is being welcomed within the church, it naturally raises the question, well, what was going on with the old perspective? Um, and why, why do I feel like I didn't have the, the full picture? Um, of course, that's more of an issue of uh, kind of historical uh, transparency and accuracy. Um, but I will say that uh, I don't see the LGBT issue and uh, polygamy to be in the same exact category uh, in terms of whether or not one can change and uh, as opposed to the other. Um, I often hear the LGBT issue um, compared to, of course, polygamy, but then also, uh, let's say, blacks in the priesthood. Uh, both two instances were uh, predominant church practices, and in many ways, uh, what was held to as doctrine uh, was drastically changed by a revelation. Um, I think that's going to be more difficult for this for this matter, Bill. Um, and the way I approach this is, uh, and the reason I think it's going to be more challenging um, for the potential for a revelation like this to come, I'm not saying it's impossible, uh, but I'm just trying to be fair to what it would entail. Um, the reason that that I personally have um, for not pushing for same-sex weddings in the temple, um, and I think I think most leaders of the church, uh, or at least those who study the church, realize that this would be a sta- stark implication. Um, at the present time, our understanding of deity is restricted to two heavenly parents um, who, through a uh, perfected and divine union, were able to bring us about as, as spirit children. Um, our concept of deity in its highest, most elevated and exalted form resides in these two heavenly parents who are in a heterosexual union. We don't know of any other type of union that exists uh, in celestial terms. And so our theology revolves around elevating uh, humans or members of the church uh, to the same level as these heavenly parents uh, by sealing them in the temple uh, for time and all eternity and, uh, um, you know, having all members strive for exaltation, which would make us uh, just like our heavenly parents. Um, And so, if a revelation was to come that was to uh, legitimize and validate same-sex weddings within the the temple ceremony, um, we would have to drastically uh, reanalyze and change our understanding of, of the plan of salvation, of what exaltation and, um, you know, divine union entails. The thing is, like, whether a person wants that or not, or whether they think that's the best route or not, the, the truthful or correct route ultimately, um, I think that would entail the single greatest um, change to church doctrine uh, and practice within Mormonism that has ever taken place. And one that I could foresee as easily causing a schism within the church between those who do accept it as a bona fide revelation and those who don't. I'm not saying it's impossible um, because like you said earlier, 
um, it's dangerous for any Latter-day Saint to say any revelation is necessarily impossible. But I do think the odds of that happening are very unlikely just because of the drastic change uh, it would cause in our own understanding of the plan of salvation, one that hasn't been uh, seen before in our history. It's one thing to change from polygamy to monogamy. It's one thing to extend the priesthood to the blacks. Um, but, you know, we have we would have a completely different change in our in our fundamental theology, um, the foundation of what we understand deity to be. Um, it would be a huge change. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I don't know if we should necessarily be holding out uh, in hopes that this is going to play out just like uh, polygamy and blacks and the priesthood holds out. Um, the position I, I see as much more likely uh, and um, in some ways I hope for is that we're able to continue to grapple with these questions that come with um, LGBT issues, uh, especially in terms of what it means within our own faith community. Um, you know, I, I pray for further light and truth on these matters uh, for leaders to be inspired uh, to be able to help and minister uh, to all members of the church, regardless of their sexuality, uh, and be able to offer them the prophetic counsel and a, a genuine space within the church to where they feel welcomed. Um, I don't know what and or how that would necessarily manifest itself. Um, you know, perhaps down the road, uh, LGBT members of the church uh, who are in uh, open same-sex relationships will be able to have callings or, you know, have perhaps lesser duties within uh, the priesthood or otherwise, um, you know, but I, I, I can see individual policies like that changing much sooner than uh, the drastic change in our theology that, uh, that having same-sex weddings within our temples w- would entail. Um, you know, I, w- I, could, I could much, much quicker see um, the, the policy regarding uh, children of same-sex couples uh, to be changed before I could see the, the, the former one changed. So, um, you know, the, these are important conversations and ones that I think we're going to need to continue to have. Um, I think in terms of history, uh, Mormons shouldn't be opposed to the idea of social uh, issues creating pressure for revelation to come. Um, of course, there's, there's, different, there's different perspectives from, you know, either critics or faithful members, um, such as, you know, when the U.S. government is pressuring the church uh, in terms of its practice of plural marriage, the, the revelation to cease plural marriage came. Uh, when you have the, the civil rights uh, movement um, quickly or, or you know, uh, sometime after the, the revelation regarding blacks and the priesthood came. You know, I'm not opposed to the idea of social issues and social pressures within the church or outside of the church. Um, prompting uh, our leaders to seek the Lord and receive revelation. Um, you know, I don't see American society turning away from uh, the LGBT community. Um, we're seeing, you know, more and more acceptance than ever before. Um, and these are going to create very uh, new questions for rising generations. I, I see it within my own generation, Bill, um, just within millennials or, or younger children. Um, you know, my siblings are, are attending school and, you know, being raised in a culture now that is 
more or less accepting of of uh, same-sex unions, um, marriages, and uh, relationships. Um, not to mention a a plethora of other sexual orientations uh, or even gender identities. Uh, what does that uh, do to the church in the long run? You know, what what kind of discussions are we going to have to grapple with? Um, down the road, we have the 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 discussion of new technologies perhaps being developed where uh, you know, a male and a male biologically, uh, through, you know, some type of scientific, uh, invention or technology will be able to produce offspring together, uh, you know, without, without need of a, of a sperm and an egg, um, you know, down the road, we're going to have to grapple with, with things like this. Um, with my siblings growing up in a, in a culture that that's normalizing all of this, and of course, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying this in a derogatory way necessarily, um, but it's a very different environment than the one that you were raised with than the one the baby boomers were raised with. Um, these generational differences uh, are very big uh, and they're going to make uh, and create new perspectives within the church. And I already see this uh, within just my own generation of millennials um, because we've been, we've been the ones to be young adults. Uh, or teenagers through through this process, uh, at least within the United States, and um, there are definitely things that that we've had to come to grips with, or or have internal or external dialogues over. Um, and there's varied viewpoints among members of my generation. I think more and more of them would like to see uh, a kinder, more accepting uh, atmosphere created in church for individuals of all sexualities, like Elder Holland said. Um, in one of his recent conference talks, um, this is a future we're going to have to create if we want to have a sustainable Mormonism, or else we'll quickly, uh, if we don't, if we only entrench ourselves more and more dogmatically, um, you know, and I, I'm not saying we have to let go of our, our stance on whether or not same-sex weddings can take place in temples, um, but at least as far as the participation of, of LGBT members in the church and what that looks like. Uh, we need to make that more and more uh, clear uh, and have these dialogues uh, to a larger extent, or else we're quickly going to uh, be lumped in with uh, other um, less favorable fundamentalists in society or in society uh, that are even less welcoming than we are presently uh, towards members of the LGBT community. Um, you know, it just won't be sustainable. We'll, we'll become a fundamentalist sect um, that uh, American society is largely out of favor with, you know, and, and perhaps in ways that's not fully a bad thing. Um, I'm not saying we have to change our doctrine because society around us is, is changing. Um, the, the church is, a, is globalizing and, and really um, our, our, our stance on, on LGBT issues is actually softer than many countries around the world. Um, I, I, I've spoken to individuals who, who grapple with this with the church in Africa, for example, and uh, attitudes towards uh, homosexuality in Africa is very different than what it is here in the States. Um, They're way more uh, conservative and traditional, if you will, uh, to where, uh, you know, they might listen to Elder Oaks talk and it sounds too soft for them. You know what I'm saying? Um, so it also depends on where you're at in the world, uh, but definitely within our American uh, context with the church, 
this is the way things are going and we need to under, we need to be better prepared to to speak to these issues uh more authentically um more openly uh and make make members who are lgbt feel more welcome within our within our services uh when it comes to elder oaks talk there wasn't necessarily anything that i staunchly disagreed with in his talk um but there were ways that I might have said it differently with my own perspective as a member. Um, and, and there were some things that I might have wished he would have said differently or, you know, phrased in a different way. I, I, I think, Bill, if Elder Holland was to have given that same talk, um, it would have sounded differently. Um, it would have come across differently and different things would have been there. Um, and, and perhaps that's just, you know, part of the differences in these, these two leaders' uh, personalities and perspectives. Um, but I think if it was uh, Elder Holland, this conference, speaking to the topic of, of marriage and gender and, and things like that within the church, um, I think we would have gotten a, a different tone um, that people might not have been uh, as concerned with. Um, Elder Oaks really didn't say anything that was too different than, you know, decades past of, of Mormon doctrine. Um, and so it's been unique that, that this time around, I, I've seen quite a few people upset or concerned with, uh, with his talk. Um, like I said, he didn't say anything new necessarily. Uh, nothing that we haven't heard before. I'd say in some ways he was actually softer than, than previous members of the church in other decades, you know? Um, but still it just shows you how pressing these issues are and perhaps how, how much some members of the church are, are desiring these discussions to be given and perhaps a, a different way, approached in a different manner, without necessarily sacrificing our doctrine, but perhaps uh, approached in, in a different way. I mean, he, he spoke of the LGBT community in the third person. Um, and for members of the church who are LGBT, um, that almost comes off as him talking past them, as not affirming their existence as members of the church. You know, so that's just one way that, you know, switching from, from third person to directly to members of the church who are struggling with this and grappling with it, um, just that alone might have created a, a different talk that felt more uh, forward and uh, you know potentially uplifting for members of the church who experience that. Um, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, difficult subject for sure, and, and one that's becoming increasingly at the forefront. Um, but these are discussions I think we need to have. And like I said, I, I'm, I'm not taking a position necessarily against the church in, in any of these ways. I'm just, um, like many members might be, um, looking forward to a time that uh, we might be able to approach these with, with some fresh perspectives um, and have, have more forward, you know, and, and authentic discussions about these where, uh, you know, members of the, of the church who do experience and go through these um, where they are where they are validated to, to more and more of an extent. You know, their challenges and struggles are, are spoken towards. Um, I, I have quite a few friends who are of the LGBT community and are Mormon, um, and uh, and so they have varied experiences in how um, they are received and treated. Some of them are very strong, active members of the church, uh, apologists even. Um, Others are just struggling to maintain their membership. Um, 
And so I think there's a variety of, of experience among this community that we need to be able to recognize and speak towards. Um, it's, it's one that needs to be ministered to. Yeah. Amen to that. So I, I hear you. And like, I want to, I want to say, I think you get it and you seem to have expressed this and it's easy to relate it back in time to the race issue, not because there's the same issue, but because I think this point is the same. If the church had not made the change in 1978 and we fast forward to 2017 and missionaries are knocking on doors with part of the baggage being that we're a church that doesn't fully accept people of color, nobody, I mean, very few people would be joining that church. And what you seem to be saying is the church can choose it or not choose it. It's up to the church. And, and, and you're not saying what's right or what's wrong, but that we, we better darn well understand that 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, 70 years from now, whenever that is, that the same dynamic exists, that when missionaries knock on a door and invite people to join saying, but part of our baggage is that we're a church that doesn't fully welcome in uh, LGBT people that you, you, um, you marginalize yourself. Like you become a smaller entity that has less relevance in the world. Not that that's the wrong direction to go, but that you, it, but that as an institution, it better be aware that that's, that's the result regardless of whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, for members of the church, we need to be able to explain ourselves and what really the foundational reason is for perhaps our aversion to accepting same-sex weddings within the church. Um, like I spoke to in terms of theology, like that that's really the most basic um, consequence that would have to change uh, that is extremely foundational in nature uh, if, if we were to uh, accept same-sex weddings within our temples. Um, our understanding of God would have to completely changed. So, you know, I, I, I've had many friends who are not religious or who are very active um, within the LGBT community, uh, you know, and, and really pushing for uh, the rights of that community to, to be protected. Um, you know, ask me about why, as a Mormon, I'm, I'm opposed to, uh, to same-sex weddings within the church or uh, really, you know, it, it's not normally phrased that kindly. It's more like, uh, perhaps why do Mormons hate gays? Right. You know, and I think we need to be able to push back against, uh, that we have hatred of, of anyone. Uh, when I've explained this position that comes down to just a matter of basic theology, this isn't a, you know, that that's a different, uh, position than someone else who might just say their answer might just be, well, uh, homosexuality is a sin. And, you know, uh, God condemns these people who practice it. Um, with us, whether or not it's a sin, like it's, it's a foundational, um, our, our understanding of marriage is a foundational aspect of our theology. Um, and so I think that's a different matter in terms of, uh, opposing it for that reason than seeing the LGBT members, um, of the church as less than, uh, or, um, or something like that. Um, cause I certainly, I certainly consider myself an, an ally for the LGBT community. Um, of course there might be individuals who disagree with whether or not I can be one, uh, holding this position, but I certainly want to see rights protected and people respected and loved and, and accepted. Um, 
uh, of course I have my own individual religious beliefs that, that play into that as well. But, you know, I certainly want to see um, uh, people treated fairly and rightly in a civil society and within the church as well. Right. I, I want to jump in here. Um, and maybe we'll just kind of end on, on this note, because I think we've covered some of the social, uh, sociality of Mormonism, which I think is great and, and not really dived into some of these specific things, although a little bit maybe at the beginning, but I agree with you, Jackson, that the position we currently hold is off on one side of the spectrum. And then the other side of the spectrum is to like fully let, um, people in a homosexual, let's just assume a homosexual legal and lawful marriage participate in the fullest venues of the church. Like those are the two ends of the spectrum and there's all this middle ground. And I want to speak to that for just a moment. Um, it's easy to say like, Here's the plan of salvation and only a man and a woman sealed together by the Holy Spirit of promise can enjoy what is on the other side that we define as exaltation. But we also need to recognize in our theology that if we step back for a moment and and not have any defensiveness and just look at the story we're told, we realize that Jehovah and Michael, two premortal men, who, while as righteous as righteous can be of Heavenly Father's premortal spirits, are not exalted beings. Agreed? Uh, in the pre-existence? Yes, in the premortal life. Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, they're not exalted beings. They haven't gotten a body yet. They haven't uh, had that experience, and they haven't enjoyed what comes after uh, death and resurrection. And, and, and obviously that happens to both of them. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. We understand that they are or will be in some sense of the word, either now or in the future, exalted beings, but they were not in the premortal life. And yet Heavenly Father entrusted these two premortal men to go and create worlds, right? To go and put, put God's spirit children on the earth in bodies and breathe the spirit of life into them and to put and to enjoy God's creative powers. So I don't think it's fair to say that in Mormonism, the only way we really get to do anything special is if we're enjoying the benefits of post-mortal exaltation, but rather to recognize that some of our teachings indicate the celestial kingdom is divided into three spheres. We don't know who's in the second and third sphere. We don't, we've never had any kind of explanation for that. So there's room for somebody we don't know exactly to end up as a celestial being and that we recognize on the front end of our theology that unexalted beings were trusted by God to pre-mortal men working together and enjoyed creative powers that we sometimes only see as being the benefit of someone who's exalted. And so I simply want to say like, there's a lot of gray area here oh, and I it's not agree. fair I to say, I know, and I, and I know you sense that, but I simply want the listener to gather and I want, in some ways, I wish I could just sit with leaders of the church and say like, guys, I know you feel like this, this, pulls the last toothpick out and everything crumbles if we cave to this. But I simply want you to know there is room in our theology to be inclusive to at least some degree and maybe, maybe all the way just shy of temple ceilings for eternity. Because there's certainly room to say there is a ceiling for time only. There's certainly room for a homosexual couple in our theology to go into a temple and to be sealed for time only if we can simply wrap our heads around that we don't always know what we think we know. Is that fair? Well, you know, I, 
I think in recognizing the gray area of our, of our own theological narrative when it comes to the plan of salvation in its entirety, uh, like you said, there, there are many aspects of it which one can uh, interpret as indicating room for, for something or other. Um, and I don't think conversations like that are necessarily wrong or that we shouldn't have them, right? Uh, of course, um, until an actual revelation comes in these matters, um, it's not a position that we can completely force. And I'm, I'm not saying you're suggesting that we need to force these interpretations uh, or say that these possibilities are actually the case. Um, no, can we just talk know. about them? Yeah, of course. Right? Of course. Can we just talk about them? Can can is it allowed? Is is Elder Oaks and Elder Holland and Elder Bednar and, and all the other members of the top fifteen? Are they willing to sit at a table and have a conversation with someone who says, like, here's all the possibilities? Can we at least open our mind to the possibilities? Because it feels like in 1978, it it, it is not until a leader of the church is willing to say, is it possible? And to open their mind to those possibilities that God seems to be able to have a space to come in and say something. Well, I think, I think it very much captures the original spirit of Joseph Smith, uh, in terms of seeking revelation to, to ponder questions such as this, um, and to take items such as this, the Lord, uh, and ask, is this possible? Um, very much through his entire, uh, process of translating the, the Bible, um, and, uh, uh, and throughout his writings in the Doctrine and Covenants, it was prompted by, by questions of, what does this mean? Uh, can you elaborate on this? Uh, you know, is, is this, is this a way to, to view things? Um, and so yeah, I, I think, I think it's an authentic Mormon position to take, um, and, and one that, uh, foundationally, um, I feel like I feel personally pushed to take because of what Joseph Smith and, and a couple other leaders have done uh, in in taking uh, items of of, um, of importance uh, or any question uh, to the Lord and, and seeking revelation and, and light regarding those those, those subjects. Um, I very much see that capturing the, the spirit of uh, of Joseph Smith and and uh, uh, Mormonism uh, in its early years um, that I don't think have always been. Uh, replicated uh, consistently throughout throughout the church. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but uh, um, I do see this as as authentic um, to to our own history uh, and to previous leaders' experience when it comes to seeking guidance from the Lord. Um, and so, at the end of the day, like you know, I have these questions just like you do, Bill. Um, and I think most millennial Mormons would be would be comfortable with this. Um, you know where regardless of what happens, we are open to further light and truth. Um, and so in the present situation with uh, LGBT members of the church, uh, you know, I, I sustain my church leader, leaders. I, I look to them as inspired men. Um, I do my best to be as, as loving and inclusive as I can uh, to minister to those who are hurting, um, to, to welcome those uh, who are looking to be welcomed within the church. Um, and just, uh, you know, help out those who are struggling, uh, because, you know, I, you know, I've had my own experiences in the church where, where I struggled with certain things. Um, and I just try and make church a, a space where they can feel welcomed and, and accepted. Um, 
you know, I, I, I pretty much, I, I take the same position as, as most, uh, you know, on most subjects within the church, you know, in, in quite a few areas, I, I'm more nuanced, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm by no means uh, running opposed to the, the doctrines of the church. Um, in many ways, I just, I just see them a little differently. And I see that being increasingly more common with millennials. Uh, we're becoming, we are more accepting as a generation to these new understandings uh, and new perspectives. And I think yeah, as, a, as a student and scholar of, of religion, um, just in general, religions are, are dynamic. They are fluid in nature. Um, they change depending on the generations of the adherents that pass through them. They develop over time. Uh, this is something that all religions go through in terms of, of, of developing um, where, you know, their foundational beliefs or doctrines might stay the same, uh, but the way that their members approach them or see them over time uh, can change drastically. And I see this happening within Mormonism, and I'm not opposed to it. I think it's very natural, and I think as members of the church, we need to, to welcome it and continue to uh, promote faithful members who care about this church and have testimonies and are wanting to establish Zion and, and better uh, this faith community that we have. Um, but at the same time, they need to be pushing for sustainable ways to do that to where you know, our faith remains relevant and attractive and, and uh, spiritually satisfying to those who, who practice it. Um, so I, th I see these generational differences as, as quite big at times, um, both in my experience in seminary and institute, just at the ground level. Um, I'll, I'll just give you a brief example. Um, I was surprised in an institute the other day um, or in the past um, when one of my teachers uh, suggested, um, you know, that perhaps we shouldn't look to the, the flood as a global event. Um, and rather than receiving an outcry of opposition to that, I looked around the room and I saw many millennials nodding in agreement, like, hmm, yeah, I, I already kind of have that view. I'm not opposed to that possibility. Um, whereas if a different audience might have been present, um, perhaps from the baby boomer generation or otherwise, um, that would just be an unthinkable shift in, in paradigm and understanding. And that's just a small example of uh, how I, I see millennials and the younger generations being more and more comfortable approaching our faith as Mormons authentically, but in new and dynamic ways uh, that are needed uh, for our generation that speak to us. Um, and so I look forward to a day in the church where uh, as the coming generation, um, we might be able to make these positions or perspectives more commonplace um, because I think they're more sustainable. And I think uh, if the church continues, these are the perspectives and some of the approaches uh, that individuals like Bushman, like Mason, like the Givens, uh, like Sam Brown and, and many others uh, that they are telling us uh, or advising us to consider, um, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And, and I've got so much more I want to ask you about Jackson. We've gone two hours and it just seems like it's been 35 minutes. Um, there's just a lot more stuff I want to talk about. And I, and I hope you feel like I've been fair with you today. Like, oh, of course. I know, this has been very enjoyable, Bill. I thank you. Yeah. 
I know some voices are out there that that feel like I would just be it would just be a hit piece, and I hope you haven't felt like that at all. No, 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 no. Um, I think these are serious issues, and they're serious questions, and they deserve uh, a vulnerable conversation. And I feel like there's so few people willing to have those. And I just want to say, like from the bottom of my heart, like thank you for being willing to take these kinds of questions and to speak to them. And, and I'm hoping at some point you'll come back on because I've got like half an outline here that I I still want to hit on. Um, I just, this is just going to be the perfect place to stop, but I, I want you to know, like, thank you so much for, for giving us a few hours of your morning. Thank you for being a, a progressive voice out there and being so considerate of these questions. It's going to be obvious to the listener that you're being really careful, that you, that you want to make sure you word things the right way, that you want to make sure that you don't say anything too far this way or too far that way, and that you honor, you honor the church while also being authentic and uh for for the listeners um just this has just been a fun conversation i think they'll they'll really enjoy this back and forth uh jackson washburn uh thank you for being on mormon discussion today and thanks so much uh just for giving us your time yeah you're welcome bill thanks for having me it was a pleasure Let's go.